Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. On this episode, we are talking with hospice nurse Julie. She's a social media superstar from the U.S. She has hundreds of thousands of TikTok followers and has generated posts with over 5 million likes. We talked to her about her origin story of starting on social media, her most popular posts, and what she thinks about the waiting room revolution. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Yay. Hi, guys. Hello. Thank you so much. What an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. And I also love Canada. Side note, I grew up on the Canadian border in Pennsylvania. Oh, no one knows this, but like I lived in Erie, Pennsylvania. It was very close to Niagara Falls. I used to go there all the time and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, we are very close to Niagara Falls too. So you're an honorary Canadian. Yay. Can we start with telling us more for our listeners who may not be familiar with you on your TikTok? Tell us more about your background and your experiences in nursing. Yeah, uh, I've been a nurse for about 14 years and I started in the ICU. So most of my time actually has been in the ICU um, back east in, in Baltimore, Maryland. And um, because of that experience, which by the way, I wasn't very happy in, but I, I spent almost 10 years there. Um, it gave me a, a huge, obviously very educational and amazing. I'm glad I did it, but I wasn't where my heart was at all. And I kind of thought I made the wrong choice in careers. I was thinking, I don't think I like nursing. Why didn't I like the ICU? I think I just didn't know. I just didn't, you don't know what you don't know. You have to like hurry up and care. <laughs> it's like hurry up and hurry up and care, like care for these people, but hurry. And it's urgent and you don't have a chance to really talk to the families during the super stressful, scary time. You don't have time to talk to the patient. It's just like this, this very um, fast paced, stressful place that I wasn't, uh, I just wasn't, my heart couldn't get into it. I, I felt stressed all the time and I just didn't feel like we were doing the right things for people in general. I mean, of course we were, we're, they were doing amazing things, but in general, I thought what we lacked was uh, an ability to talk to families and the patients and the nurses and the doctors and residents and everybody in this little circle of people who are trying to help this person. We never really address the whole of like, what's the goals? Where's this person going to be in six months? What's, what's, what would they, where would they want to be? You know, um, and I felt like when I was a new nurse, I had no clue what was going on. But as I was doing it for years, I thought, why aren't we talking to them about the reality of the situation, mm -hmm. which is they're likely going to die. <laughs> not everybody in the ICU, not at all, but some people. Right. And so I didn't like that. And there was only one doctor, one, one fellow that was really good at that. And I clung on to her and I loved what she did during these family meetings and during these, during these rounds we would do. And um, I started learning all about like how to speak to families about death and dying and, and, and what that looked like. And it started making me think about palliative care and hospice work. And then that's when I, I kind of am getting away from myself now, but that's when I transitioned to, I think I want to get into that line of work because that's where it felt really meaningful. Mm -hmm. oh. and, now here and, how, and, and how did that transition happen? You, 
Well, I moved. I moved across the country and I was a travel nurse just to just to do something. And then um, I got my first um, hospice job first as a hospice case manager, uh, basically begging and pleading because they wanted me to have experience. I didn't have any. (laughs) I just was like, this is what I want to do. I think I'm meant to do it. Please let me do it. Um, And they did. And then that moved into hospice and palliative care. So I just got my first hospice job. They gave me a chance. And then I transitioned to like hospice and palliative role. It's been really great. I love it now. And now I do feel like I'm meant to be a nurse and I do love my job. Um, I really do. I really do. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) I can't believe it. I can't (laughs) believe it. I can't believe that I would do my job. Even if I somehow had money coming in other ways, I still would be a nurse a hospice if you won, and palliative if you care. won a lottery you would still I would be still a nurse in hospice and palliative care I would still do it I love it how many years have you been doing it for um about five yeah five, about five. Mm-hmm. so I did ICU for about nine and then this for about five what do you think it would be like Julie if you knowing what you know now the five years later would you be a different nurse in the ICU if you yes. went back <laughs> yes yeah. Yes. One, I couldn't go back. I could not go back. But yeah. but if I had to, uh, I would be a very different nurse, way more um, whole body. Uh, I, I'm not saying it right, but like, uh, I just, yeah, I'd be like way, way more holistic, holistic, way more looking at the person for um, all these, uh, the, 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 the whole, whole story. person says like, in the ICU, it was like minuscule little things like every hour, what was the year? I mean, those things matter too in the ICU. I get it. But like your scope is just so focused that you lose. Mm-hmm. I didn't do any kind of holistic <laughs> whole body yeah. person at all, at all. In our podcast, there's an episode called Zooming Out. What I'm hearing you saying is in the ICU, they're really missing the big picture of what's going on because we're so focused on what needs to be attended to, but there's rarely a chance to back up and say, okay, who are we caring for right here? And where are they at in this illness story? And what does it mean that we have these decisions to make for their future? And how's their family going to cope with bringing them home like this and what to expect, et cetera, et cetera. I also, I mean, I don't know if we want to get on this soapbox, uh, but I do think a lot of that has to do with, at least on a nursing level, time. Yeah, we do not have time yeah. to do that. I mean, uh, or at least it feels that way. Whether that's no, I think that's true. But and I haven't been in the ICU for a while, so I, it could have changed. But that's what I mean by hurry up and care. Like even if I wanted to do those things, like it didn't feel like there was time to truly. Because that takes time to talk yeah. to the family, to bring it up, to talk to the doctors about it. The doctors don't have time. We don't have time. No one has real yeah. time to, because some of that stuff, I, I do have time. I love uh, where I work now. I have time. Not every hospice has time either, but I specifically do. And that makes a world of difference when I'm talking to people, to meet them where they're at, actively listen, bring up things that you wouldn't normally have time to really bring up and discuss So maybe there isn't a lot of time in the ICU, but I would say, who's been caring for this person before they landed in the ICU? Yeah. How many teams have had touch points with this patient and family already? By the time they come to the ICU with the fourth exacerbation and they're intubated, 
it is um, wrong that the family doesn't really get where they're at in their illness. It's not nurse Julie in the ICU's um, fault. It's the fault of all the different teams who haven't invited those big questions, those big discussions before. And then we get the patient and think, oh, I don't have time. Um, but it's the people who see them before they get to the ICU. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we digress. Okay, now let's talk about more fun things. Tell us about the life of a day in Julie's hospice and palliative care work. What does a day look like for you? Oh my gosh, I have the best day. I lucked out. I also try to give nurses uh, this advice because I think a lot of nurses think they can't do this. So I purposely work at a big, a big uh, place, a big facility. So they always need help. And I work per diem purposely. So I'm just, I can work when I want to work and I can kind of do and come and go as I please, which is amazing for a nurse. So um, I'm, because of that, I do most admission work, which I love because it means that I'm admitting people onto palliative or hospice, depending on what they want mm-hmm. and in the referral, I guess, but I do both. So sometimes I'll get a referral for palliative and then after talking to them, I they want hospice so I can switch them over or, or vice versa. Um, so I usually have one admission and one we call follow-up, which is me following up, helping another nurse with another patient who's either having issues or just came on service and needs an extra visit or whatever's going on. Um, so it's amazing. I have time <laughs> to really talk and educate families about uh, the different programs and if they're a good fit, if the patient's a good fit. Um, and then I also get to follow up with other patients that may need, usually they're having issues. So it feels really good too, because you can, I can do a lot of things for them. So, um, and then I come home and I document all of the stuff. So there's a lot of documentation for sure, uh, but I've gotten good at it as far as like making it, uh, not seem as I can do it pretty quickly. And that is it. <laughs> And so when did you pivot to social media superstar hospice nurse, Julie? Tell us about how and when, and like, what was that all about? This has been the craziest part of it all. Six months ago, I will, I, if you can't tell, I love talking about hospice and palliative care and I'm really passionate about it and I love it. So I do this to my friends and family anyway. And they will hear some of the things I say and they'll be like, oh my gosh, people need to hear this. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, I think, I think so too. This was six months ago. And I thought about doing a podcast. Good job, you guys, because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I, um, it's just a lot of work and I don't have all the time and I don't know how to edit things. That's not my forte, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I went home for a break. I finally was vaccinated and so was my family. So I went home to see my nieces and my family. And my nieces who are 10 and 11 are on TikTok doing dances. And I thought it was funny and kind of made fun of them and got on TikTok just so I could watch them dance because they wanted me to. As I watched TikTok, I was like, wait a minute, this is an amazing platform to like make these little videos. And you don't really have to have followers because TikTok just sends stuff out to people. And if Mm -hmm. people like it, it'll grow on its own. Mm -hmm. So I tried it. And four videos later, it like exploded. What was the nature of those four videos? Like, what do you think? Because a lot of people are on TikTok, but what was your secret sauce? What was it? 
Um, the first few videos I talked about were the main things I always tell other just people in general, which is, and I've just, uh, is that, you know, we don't give IV fluids to a actively dying patient talking about that. Then I talked about the die with dignity law that's in 10 states in the US. Mm -hmm. um, none of the, all the things that I think are really interesting about that, mm -hmm. none of those, no one liked those. <laughs> The one okay. video everyone liked was me talking about the wonderful book Gone from My Sight by Barbara Carnes, if you guys know it. Uh, I just talked about that book. And for some reason, it was a poorly made video, I thought, uh, but for some reason, everyone liked it. And just that one video kind of took, took off and then other videos took off. And six months later, <laughs> no, I'm just as flabbergasted as you guys, to be honest. So what's it like? It's really fun. It's so fun. It's really validating. It makes me feel so good and so happy that people, it's really validating to know that like, I feel like death shouldn't be this like dirty, scary word and people who are dying shouldn't be like rushed off to the corner and whispered about, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that like other people seem to be gravitating to those ideas too, that like we can talk about this, this can be something as natural as birth and uh, just kind of changing and like using the words dying, death, dead. I love, even people think that's really harsh, but I'm like, isn't that interesting that we think that's really harsh? And like, that's what we're all gonna do. We're all gonna die. Like, it is, like I think it's funny that that's the opinion that like using those words, well, those, don't use those words. That's just so harsh. And it's like, well, let's change that. So anyway, my whole point is I, it feels, wonderful that it feels validating and there's conversations and I get messages from people saying I really helped them um what's funny too is I didn't set out nor am I an expert at all in death anxiety at all I have no <laughs> background in that but I get messages on a daily basis from people saying I've really helped them with their very bad death anxiety that they've had for years mm -hmm. just through education and and learning about death and dying, which I didn't set out to do. I would say some of your secret sauce, um, because I looked at it at some of your TikTok videos uh, before this, is how approachable you seem and how you speak very, you know, plainly about things and without, you know, a fanciful language. Uh, you just tell it like it is and you're, yeah, very accessible information. You make things that are very scary and often um, taboo seem like they're tangible and okay to talk about. It's like so normal. This is such a normal person uh, yeah, who, who doesn't seem like they have this mega ego or this massive agenda or, and that you're having fun doing it. Um, so I think all of those things just make you like everyone wants to know you which is really beautiful. It's a beautiful quality. Thank you. I, I, I'll take it. All I'm here doing is like talking about the stuff I love talking about. So mm -hmm. the more I just talk about the stuff I love talking about, the easier and nicer it feels. And yeah, that helps. Definitely helps. So what is the craziest video that you've done? But the craziest thing, um, the things that go viral every single time, there's three things that get millions of views every single time I post are when I talk about the surge of energy or the rally that people have, not everybody, usually about one third of patients will have some kind of surge of energy before they die. 
Um, and then uh, people seeing dead relatives before they die, which is always so funny because people always think I'm just trying to push an agenda of like my belief system. And I just want to be like, I, I need to make this clear. Like I have, that is not what I'm doing. It's just something that happens. I can't, I can't help it. That, that is truly something that happens. And it's crazy. And that's why I'm telling you about it, <laughs> it happens all the time. Um, and not just with me, like across the board. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not just my experience here. Um, but people always think I'm trying to push that there's an afterlife. And I'm like, no, I just want to tell you the weird stuff that's going on. Um, so that one always goes viral. And then not giving IV fluids to actively dying patients. That always goes viral. So those, I love those topics. I think it's really interesting. And apparently other people do too. Mm -hmm. You are very clear and passionate about talking about death and dying. And I wonder if you feel like that is, if it's because where, you know, there's been, there's such a, a, an emptiness, a dearth of information of people wanting to talk openly about the last, you know, this last phase of life, really end of life, end of life. Do you think that's a piece of it that, you know, they're looking, they're craving this information because we, it is just so not talked about and whispered about in the corner. I don't know, but what, but what I can tell you is what I've found since I have this time now to talk with people who are dying and mm -hmm. their families, what I found is the biggest thing I see in almost everybody all the time is relief. Like when, when they meet someone, not like, like me, you know, but anyone who's, anyone who's comfortable with saying out loud to them, like, here's what to expect with your specific disease at death or end of life. Like I've noticed that mo most people are afraid to say those words or afraid to talk about it, like he even healthcare providers. And what I found is the less afraid I seem about it, the more they're like, like relieved. And then it opens up this doorway for them to ask questions. And by the end of the, by the end of this visit, most people seem really thankful and really like a weight is off their shoulders. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it makes me really passionate about doing that all the time trying to get like again meeting people where they're at but also because because what i find is that that's what people seem to like like they seem you know just they seem to be like relieved that there's one person who seems comfortable enough to like actually hear their fears or actually hear like they feel safe to be like i'm really afraid to die i can tell i'm dying and i'm afraid mm -hmm. right and then i can because I'm, I don't know why, but I'm comfortable. Or I, I, I like the fact that they can tell that I can hear that. They seem really, uh, like relieved is the best thing I could describe. They look really relieved. So I just played on that. I should let Sammy talk because this is literally what you know Sammy sees every single day and does. And the same relief that she talks about when she sees her, her patient, uh, you know, and does her home visits. And it was sort of like, what if they weren't lucky enough to meet us? Or why are we meeting them so late? And what would that look like if they had that information earlier? So no. the other part of my question is connected to, do you feel like there's inf some of what the information that you have could be helpful earlier? Oh, 100%, 100%. I don't know how, I don't know how or why, but I feel like there, we, need, we, we could or should change something. I always wish I could like, somehow and not just me i don't mean to like put me on this pedestal not that just in general healthcare workers like being like 
if I could consult with a hospital and go around and just talk to people about it. Or I don't, I don't know the, I don't know, um, like, I, I mean, like this whole TikTok thing has kind of taken me by surprise and I don't really know what to do with it or where to go with it, but I, I wish I could. I mean, I'm glad I've kind of been talking to masses because I, uh, it seems to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And I love it. So Sammy, uh, on a side note, so you notice that too with patients that you talk to? Like this, this okay. form of like, it's like bricks coming off their chest or something. Julie, you know, like, honestly, I can't begin to tell you. Um, yeah. In the first part of my career, so I've been doing this full time, I don't know, for like 17 years. By the time, like I can tell you now, that where I thought I was going to be this most incredible symptomatologist, this like, um, you know, crazy symptom management kind of stuff, you know, it didn't take long for me to realize that first of all, people's symptoms are completely amplified and turned up because of their fears and the stuff that no one's telling them about and their anxiety and the mystery about the future makes pain worse. It makes sleeping worse. It makes breathlessness worse. It makes their appetite, their mood, everything. You get called for these symptoms, but when you unpack them, it's because they're just waiting for someone to help them find the anchors. And by the time you're done untangling all of this for them and helping them like just feel like suddenly they know more, you're right. Their shoulders drop their wrinkles melt away. They feel so much more relaxed and often say, you know what? Thank you so much. You are the first person yes. who has ever, ever helped us understand this. This has been so helpful. And guess what? We go back to their symptoms. They're not as bad, honestly. I hear so many stories of this. Patients are waiting for doctors to bring it up and doctors are waiting for patients to ask. Do you find that a lot of people, when they get their timeline, let's just say that they think that it's going to just be lights out and they don't realize that there's this phase called dying that happens where there's a downward trend. Um, I find a lot of people, they may understand that they're going to die from something and they may even be told that it might be in six months, but they have no idea what dying looks like over six months. Like yes. what that trajectory looks like. Yes. Like they're really surprised when I say, when I try to plan on like, so who's going to be caring for you? Um, yeah. you know, who, what do you mean I'm going to need care? I don't want, yeah. <laughs> At hospital bed. Like, yeah. No, I don't need it. And you're like trying to under, make them understand that like, eventually you're not going to be getting up. You're going to be incontinent. You're going to be, um, again, I have, I, I make it a very uh, compassionate conversation where we're just we're openly talking about it but yeah. i'm always surprised people, people do not always equate they they don't know that they're going to functionally decline exactly decline. not not eat as much you know sleep a lot more all the things i always tell people you know your your body knows how to wind down it is pre-programmed it knows how to do this you have to listen to your body the whole weakness and the fatigue and your lower stamina and your appetite all dwindling is your body preparing to do a very natural thing. Sammy, we are cut from the same cloth here. <laughs> well, I love you. 
I'm going to say, I, I always say my, I, my main like slogan is let the patient be, because family members always want to do what, what can I do? You know? And I always say, yeah. let the patient, let your loved one be the guy. And then to the patient, let your body be the guy. Listen your to your body, body. Listen to it. Yeah. If it wants to sleep, as long as you're clean, as long as you're safe, as long as you're comfortable, mm-hmm. we're good. If you yeah. want to sleep, if you don't want to eat, that's okay because our bodies are built to be survive birth for the most part, and they're built to die eventually. Yeah. And the less we mess with that natural process, yes, it can be. Yes, Julia. Yeah. Do you think people have this Hollywood version of dying where it's like filled with pain and they're going to be like, uh, you know, like, yeah, people you, always you, think they're going to be in pain. And I, I always also try to say that, I mean, there is pain sometimes because of the disease they're dying from. I don't know if death is necessarily painful. What do you think, Sammy? I always say death isn't really the painful part. It's the disease that you're dying from that could be painful. Maybe it's not even. Okay, Julie, this is what I do. I tell people that your past predicts the future performance here. And so if pain has been a big problem in your illness experience, it could continue to be tricky and we will do our very best to keep you comfortable. However, if pain has not been part of this illness story at all, it is very unlikely to rear its ugly head. New symptoms do not usually come out of nowhere just because you're dying. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you've had trouble with seizures, okay, we're going to have to plan for if that happens. If you've had breathlessness, okay, we're going to have to plan to manage that. But these things just don't come out of nowhere just because you begin to start winding down. The way your illness has behaved so far is usually the way it's going to continue to behave. Yeah. End of story. End of story. And I like winding people, down. I like that. Winding yeah. down. I have to remember that. <laughs> Fading. It's a dimmer, you know, not a light switch. And so, yeah, but, but 90% of people that I meet, their biggest fear, even if they've not had one glitch of pain, it, and they, they just assume that this is going to be a painful experience, that dying, uh-huh. like they're going to choke or burst out into flames or their head's yeah. going to fall off or they're going to bleed all over the place like a murder scene like I think people equate dying to murder yeah uh, and you know mostly it's a fade it is a fade it's a chapter that actually has a soft landing if we don't go mucking around and over medicating people with the wrong medications and trying to give them too much hydration, um, you know, when their body's trying to slow down, uh, force feed them when their body doesn't want it. Um, yeah, uh, people have trouble just being. Yeah, and that's really why we created this podcast. You're normalizing and demystifying death and dying through your TikTok and Instagram. And we, We're trying to go upstream in the illness journey and share with people the benefits of an early palliative care approach so that for all the time after the diagnosis to when they typically meet someone like you, a hospice nurse, what could be done in between to take away that fear and anxiety, or even more so for all the people who would never get to meet a hospice nurse, Julie, or a Dr. Sammy, because they don't know what hospice is or they're afraid of it. So we're really trying to change the language and normalize a different approach 
one where patients and families could leech out a palliative care approach without ever using those words on their own terms. Yes, I couldn't. I like. I wanted to like slow clap you while you were saying this because we do have to meet people where they are. We can't just shove stuff down their throat or they're not going to listen anyway. I I love it. I could do this all day long. It's like we need. Um, like, how do we do that? I mean, I would love to hear how how you guys think about doing it. I feel like even oncology oncologists already you know oncologists and palliative doctors working together or those programs being tied more closely. Like oh, right I, away, right away, you know. I, I would go one step further and I would say we shouldn't stop until every oncologist will just use pick on them for a second. Yeah. Knows how to provide palliative care as a natural part of their own skill set. To be perfectly honest with you, yes. I do not see why a cardiologist, a respirologist, a hepatologist, a nephrologist, whatever ologist sub in. They are the experts in those diseases and they can, you know, help people from the time they're diagnosed through the entire illness journey. Why should they have to suddenly get in a palliative care specialty team at the end is, I feel, um, (laughs) a little bit ridiculous. We should train all doctors and nurses, regardless of what field they go into, to be confident to provide the ABCs of a palliative approach. Using palliative care expert nurse like you, Julie, or an expert doctor like me, as needed to consult. But when we're not consulting, the person still gets a palliative approach integrated into their care uh, by whatever team's caring for them. It's not just you and me doing it. Everyone has to do it, right? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. And um, Anne has to know about it. I know I know as an ICU nurse that some of the things I say in my videos now, I would have been shocked. Like I would not have known some of the things. I would not have known. I, I mean, um, not that I wouldn't have believed it, but I am kind of shocked sometimes that some of my comments um, when are from nurses. <laughs> that don't believe what I'm saying. And I, and I, and I, I kind of get it to one extent. Part of me is like, what the heck are you thinking? But another part of me is like, I get it. You are trained only in this one area and you can't see beyond it. You were mentioning hospice and palliative. Okay. And in Canada, it's a little bit different. We use the words differently. Um, a hospice in Canada is actually a physical place where they usually have anywhere from eight to let's say 20 individual rooms where people go in the last three months of life to die. It's a physical building with, um, they get palliative care in this physical hospice. We call the care that people get, um, who people who are facing progressive life-limiting illnesses, every kind of progressive life-limiting il- illness, we provide a palliative approach to their care and have palliative care specialist teams involved at times throughout the illness journey. So like palliative care is an approach to care. It's also a specialty sometimes. Um, but it's, I'm wondering if you could explain the difference between when you say hospice and palliative, what you mean. So at least for me, from my experience uh, as an American nurse, uh, palliative care is tough to like fully explain because it can differ. 
from agency to agency as far as like what you get, right? Like what was provided to you. Um, and it used, so what our criteria usually is, is um, a year or some kind of diagnosis that is a year or less to live. That's mm -hmm. very gray, right? But the, in general. Mm -hmm. And um, you and the again, this is a little different. Like it, it goes different from agency to agency. So the agency I work for now, there's specific criteria, and it's very specific, and they're very strict. It's actually harder to get on to palliative care than it would be hospice, mm -hmm. because they're providing in-home services. So, okay. um, but in I guess in a generality, palliative care to us is someone who has like a year or less to live. Mm -hmm. Typical patient is like a, a cancer patient who's receiving chemo and radiation, having a lot of side effects from that. So the palliative mm -hmm. care team comes in to help with, um, to help kind of keep uh, symptoms at bay. Mm -hmm. So they're just not constantly in and out of the clinic or the ER with these symptoms. So mm -hmm. that's like typical. Um, the stuff that we do, I mean, our, our palliative care to me is like a no brainer. If, if someone can actually get onto it, it's a little mm -hmm. difficult to get on, they should, because there's literally no downside. Yeah. We have in-home care, we have a 24 hour number you can call. Mm -hmm. um, so we truly work on managing someone's symptoms from the mm -hmm. disease that they have. Um, but that does vary from agency to agency. Like our agency happens to be really good. I think a lot of other agencies, not that they're not good, but they don't provide as much care mm -hmm. uh, as ours would, but it's all in home. And then we also do have, um, uh, outpatient palliative care, which is a clinic. So it mm -hmm. just depends. Mm -hmm. um, now hospice is Medicare driven. So it's paid for by Medicare. So it's federally funded. And um, the criteria for us is less than six months to live. Usually you're comfort focused and depending on what you're on for, depending on what diagnosis you're coming on for, we have specific criteria per diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be you can get it inside a nursing home or a boarding care. We call them in California. Some states do have hospice homes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure California does somewhere, but in Los Angeles, I don't work for any of them. So I don't know if they have them or not. Um, and then, but we, we do most of the care in the home. So mm -hmm. the patients in the home, the family does most of the care. Mm -hmm. And um, we kind of pop in and out and help sporadically and when needed. And um, they call, we do have, they do call us 24 seven. So someone can go out at two in the morning, but someone's mm -hmm. not there all the time. When you sign up for the hospice benefit in the US, you're saying, I no longer am going to take any kind of curative treatment intent. Whereas I'm, I think what I'm reading into what you're saying is if you can put into the palliative care uh, grouping in a hospital, you can still get treatment potentially, or no, you cannot. When you're on hospice, yes, no more, no, uh, you can hospital. no longer do any kind of curative anything. You can't go to the hospital, you're, you can't go to the ER, you don't get chemo, radiation. You cannot go to the ER, you're not, they won't pay for it. Pay out of pocket. But, oh. but if the, those who go to the palliative care who get admitted, they could still go to the hospital or the ED, right? That's, see, this is, that's yes. the So difference. palliative care, you still can, yes. Yeah, that's Hospice, you that's cannot. Right. I mean, you can still go. Nothing is going, you just come off service that you automatically right. come off. You cannot do both.
Yeah. And it's all a money driven thing. I think this that's the, the danger of linking the words palliative and hospice with funding. Oh things. yeah. Uh -huh. People then don't get the philosophy of care from all their doctors and nurses because they're yeah. not labeled yet. Um, you know, if I got ALS, um, the average life expectancy for the average person with ALS is five years. So I've got five years left. So a palliative approach should be woven into my illness journey by every single person I touch base with, whether it's my family doctor or my neurologist or the nurses that care for me, because my illness is progressive. It's going to change every single year, then every month, then every week. So I shouldn't have to wait for a philosophy of a palliative approach until I qualify for some palliative basket of services or hospice services in the last year or months of my life. So this is a big problem when we label, attach things to funding, then it's like, well, if you're not on that, we don't really have to have these important conversations because you weren't palliative yet. And we hear that so much, you're not palliative yet, or you're not hospice yet, or, well, guess what? I still deserve a palliative approach. Do you guys think the U.S., like, do you guys think Canada does it, has a better grasp versus the U.S.? I mean, not other countries, but versus the U.S., like on death and dying and palliative. And like, do you guys feel like you've, you've done it better? you've got it. not that it's a competition i'm just curious because no. i i yeah well we do, do everything better but it's funny because you they're way more because like it's it's a double-edged sword because they've attached hospice to funding it people get it very late when they opt in right um mm -hmm. and the six month thing and we have people have to decide and get sign off from the clinician the and be like yes yes in the states but because they've attached funding you have way more hospice providers and in everywhere across america which is humongous and even in small places you will have a you can find a hospice provider because they have put money towards it whereas here the hospices the residential hospices that we're talking about are community-based fundraise they have to raise over a million dollars every year in whatever small community to, to 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 be able to pay for the lights in the building so the government pays for the nurses and not so it's a double-edged sword and i'm not i don't think we need to we should, this approach should not be tied to uh you know, to a time because that causes, that's the issue. It's not about needs. It's about this time. And mm. they, th that makes the approach not accessible to people because people will say, oh, you know, you need to be a specialized provider, but then there, you know, the money allows it to be ubiquitous. You can everywhere across America, you can access hospice care in Canada. No, but I just feel passionate that everyone facing a serious illness should have access to a palliative care approach, even if they don't have access to a hospice bed. And I do wish we had more hospice beds, like in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. But anyway, hey, did you have another question for us? Now, so I've heard from a lot of my followers when I talk about the death with dignity dignity law, mm -hmm. uh, they always mention something called maids. Yeah, I'm maids. curious what 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 because uh, I I always give the criteria and I say how um, I have a whole opinion about it because I think it, it leaves a lot of people out, unfortunately, and then. Um, people in Canada will say, um, we'll talk about maids. And I just want to hear. I can tell like, you, about can you. Yeah. Can you explain it and like the criteria and all that, all that stuff? Yeah. So it's a changing landscape. Okay. So I'll just give you, um, 
it became legal here across our entire country. So I know it's different in the States, it's state by state by state, but here in Canada in 2016, uh, medical assistance in dying, so that's where the MAID came from, medical assistance in dying became legal. Okay, for people who are 18 years and older, who are Canadian citizens or eligible for our funded healthcare, who have a progressive life-limiting illness or disability, whose death is in the foreseeable future, who have intolerable suffering as far as they define yes, it. It's subjective, right? They can say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of that is subjective. Even the um, death is in the foreseeable future. It's up to whoever is the assessor to decide. Some might think, okay, well, that's in your final days. Others might say, okay, you with ALS, death is in your foreseeable future five years later. So, so much of the criteria was still left for the person who's assessing the patient to be um, subjective. It was generally kind of gray. Yeah, like, it's right. Like there are, so th those are the criteria you have to have two different assessments done by either nurse practitioner or doctor, and they have to assess if the person meets those criteria. And everyone is different. They have different bars, high bars and low bars of if they say, yep, you meet the criteria or you don't. So still, if you're 18 or younger, you can't. And also you still can't make it part of an advanced directive. So people who get diagnosed with dementia, let's say, can't say, oh, in 10 years, I'd like assisted dying uh, when I'm confused down the road. That still is, has not passed here, but it's getting broader and broader and broader. So could someone with dementia say, I don't want to see myself get confused and I know death will come from this disease, so I do want to die or no, no it's no, not so they can't. Yeah, because first of all, they're not in the advanced stage. Uh -huh of an illness at the time they might ask that they're not, they don't have an advanced disability okay. by the time they meet those criteria, they're not cognitively well enough to make that choice. Yeah. This has to come from the person, but so ALS you could because ALS you could. Yeah. As long as you're competent. Um, and it depends on the assessor again. So some people would say, no, you're still five years out and you're not suffering. Uh, oh. Other people might say, oh, Yes, you clearly have told me how this diagnosis is causing you intolerable suffering and you will die from this ALS. So I can see your death in the foreseeable future. You meet the criteria. So it's- Do they have to take the medication themselves or do you guys give it? No, so you know what? Here, mostly across Canada, they're doing um, physician administrative, administrated um, IV um, meds. They're not doing oral meds because of the high failure rate um, of oral meds. So there you get usually a series of injections IV and from the beginning to the end of the injections usually takes like five minutes, the person is gone. Yeah, I've heard it's painless and peaceful, but curious, how does it work in California? Do you do it by IV or do they take a pill? Yeah, we do the oral. So our criteria is a little different and um, it has, so the person has to be able to physically take the, the medication themselves. So that's why, um, yeah, ours is much more oh. strict. Yeah, that's so interesting. 
Unfortunately, we're out of time, but next time we should do a whole episode about MAID or medical assistance in dying. There's so much to talk about. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. This has been so fun. You guys are so great. It's so nice to meet you. I love what you're doing. So this has been an honor. I love it. It's amazing to meet you. I feel like I've met my American sister. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.